Welcome to Yellow Mensa exploring cross-centered contextual justice in the South African context. Yellow Mensa is a ministry of Isabombano, Center for Biblical Justice. I am your host, David Kluter. And guys, unfortunately with me, John is not here. Uh, he couldn't join us today, but I do have a very, very special guest with me today. And, and I'm sure those of you guys who are following us, listening to us, we would have advised you to listen to these brothers. I have with me today is Mr. Blue Check Verify himself. Um, I'm sure Tyler is, is laughing where he is when he <laughs> listens to this. I have Mr. Jamar Tisby with me, the president of The Witness, a Black Christian Collective and co-host of Pass the Mic podcast. Jamar is here today to share with us on, on church history, the black church and his book, The Color of Comprom- Compromise. We're extremely privileged and honored to have you with us, brother. Welcome. Oh, man. Yeah, I had to beg to get on the show. I come all the way to South Africa. You had to beg. And I had to petition you to get on the show. This almost didn't happen. Wow. No, 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 no. That's the other way around. (laughs) That's how big it is, man. (laughs) That's how big it is. That's how how, uh, balling you all are. So, yeah, I'm just glad you let me. We We allowed you. We allowed you. (laughs) Exactly. We allowed you. Even though I came to another continent, another country. Just to be in the same room mm. with you, Jamal. Let's let's uh, let's right jump right into this. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, your faith journey, your family, and possibly church background as well. Yeah. So I'll give you sort of the abbreviated spiritual biography of myself. Spiritual. I went. I grew up in uh, uh, north of Chicago mm-hmm. in Illinois, and my family we we weren't Christian when I was growing up. We weren't hostile to Christianity. It just wasn't on the radar Mm -hmm. until high school. When a guy in my class, uh, it was a first period health class. We, we, we struck up a friendship or rather he struck up a friendship with me. Eventually he invited me to youth group with him. And that's where I became a Christian. Wow. Now issues of race were front and center, even then as a teenager, because Mm -hmm. the, the youth group was a white evangelical youth group. And then the church attached to it, which I started attending, was also a white evangelical church. So in both of those settings, I'm one of maybe two or three people of color uh, or or black people specifically. So, you know, I didn't think too, too much about it. I just noticed, okay, hey, there ain't a lot of folks Mm -hmm. that look like me here. Then I go to uh, college uh, at the University of Notre Dame, which is a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. And uh, the same friend who introduced me to Christ in high school also... uh, sent me a book called Desiring God by John Piper. Wow. And that was my introduction to Reformed theology. This is before I even knew there was a thing Reform. called Reformed theology, wow. right? Mm-hmm. So it was just for me, it was like, okay, this talks a lot about the Bible. It's helping yes. me think about the Bible more. So I look at footnotes, I look at endnotes, I'm finding pastors and sermons and trying to find out more about this. Yeah. I end up going to, the first Reformed church I went to was a Dutch Reformed church. Wow. Yeah, in Indiana. Interesting. Um, so I know that has a whole lot of context yes, here, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, but this is uh, the, the U.S. branch of, 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 of the Dutch church. And, um, you know, they had all these Dutch names and, and yeah. they were tall. I didn't know they were just like just a tall people. So I'm short, I'm black, and I'm the only black guy sure. in the whole congregation. Wow. Um, but he was preaching exegetically, you know, going mm-hmm. verse by verse through books of the Bible. You knew nothing. I knew nothing. It was all just, topical, okay. thematic preaching yeah. that I had been exposed to, or through uh, Catholicism, the Mass, and, and yes, the, yes, and the yes, lectionary. Yes. Yeah. So um, this was new for me. So I kept going, but I also was like, well, "Where are the where are all the black people?" So um, it was it was it was toward the end of college or right after college. I found a book called "On Being Black and Reformed." by a guy named Anthony Carter, who's a, a black pastor in, in uh, the Atlanta, Georgia area. Mm. So I was like, okay, well, there's at least one other black and reformed person yeah. out there. So maybe I can yeah. stick it out. Those questions kind of went on the back burner when um, I graduated from college and joined something called Teach for America. It's almost like the Peace Corps for teachers. They send yeah. you for two years into an underserved uh, school area. And I served there. I did my two years. I stayed on another two years, yeah. so a total of four years as a sixth grade teacher. And then uh, I became a principal, uh, a middle school principal. And it was during that time that I really started asking, well, what does my faith have to say about justice? Uh, the county where I live is the fourth poorest county in the entire United States. Sure. And so um, all the issues that go along with extreme poverty from single-parent households, health issues, food deserts, incarceration, all of that stuff 
was walking into my class on, on two legs every day. And there's a church on every other corner. And I'm like, why isn't this changing? Um, yeah. And I'm looking, you know, this is the Bible Belt, as they call it in America. Mm. And I'm like, well, why hasn't Christianity made an impact on the day-to-day -day lives of people who are suffering under poverty in this extremely wealthy nation? Yeah. And I honestly didn't find that many answers, uh, certainly not in the Reformed tradition, uh, certainly not sure. by the white Christians and theologians who I had been trained to follow. So, so you, would, you would actually go to brothers and sisters and... Or, or read online and see what guys are doing. Yeah, or, yeah. Or people within your immediate context and community, right. you would approach them and find out, like, guys, what's... Yeah, at this point, because it's a rural area, it's mostly online or through books or, sure. you know, yeah. the connections I had made. And, uh, you know, it's not that anyone was opposed, like, people saying, oh, well, yeah, they should be poor. Nobody said that. But it, it wasn't like they were preaching a gospel that spoke to them. Wow. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. But I was so immersed in teaching, I didn't, like, sit down and try to write new theology or something yes. like that. Um, but I did have a call, even from high school, I thought, to go to seminary. So I finally did go to seminary in, um, at, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the heart of the Deep South. And it was an education on top of an education. So I got my seminary education, and then I got my real-world education on race. Um, so, you know, we'll get into this later, but, you know, in a seminary curriculum... They teach you certain things, but they leave out a whole lot of other yep. stuff, yep. like justice, yep. like race. And that's some reason I do not understand. <laughs> some of your listeners and you will, will know that struggle intimately. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, you know, uh, to speed it up a bit, we started the African American Leadership Initiative, which was to recruit black people to the seminary. Uh, Jackson is 80% black, which is the second highest proportion of any city over 100,000 in the entire nation. But we had, when I came, we had about three black students, three African-American students. Sure. Um, and, and it was also to uh, equip students of any race for uh, multicultural ministry. Mm. That was also about the same time that we started what was then the Reformed African-American Network and what is now the Witness a Black Christian yes. Collective. I think I saw when you guys were still... Uh, ran. Yes, yeah. I, I think I, I liked, I saw something on Facebook, you subscribed to that, but I, I had no idea what I was subscribing right. to. I just, I just knew that my theology was, was being affected at the time, yeah. and I saw a lot of my friends who had similar theology liking and listening and, and being here, and I was like, okay, yeah. maybe this is a space maybe that I should... Maybe come to it. Yeah. Yes, uh -huh. yes, yes, yes. Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> yes, yes. Ah, come on, man. At that time, it's when you announced, actually, a couple of months later, you announced the name would be oh, changed. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, so that was 2017. Yes. On Reformation Day, October 31st. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's usually when we do our big announcements. Yeah. On the Reformation Day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. people remember that. That's that on purpose. On <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's a little bit how I got to where I am. Um, sure. You know, there's a whole bunch that happened from 2015 to 2017 in the mm -hmm. States around race, uh, Black yes. Lives Matter movement, uh, yeah. videos of, of black people getting killed by police officers, uh, the Emanuel Nine massacre in Charleston, South Carolina. And of course, the, the big bombshell was the 2016 election and what yeah. that revealed about the racial rifts between black and white Christians. Yeah, we have... Our very own Trevor Noah, who keeps us in the yes, loop. Yes, Because we, 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 we're not following your politics. We're following <laughs> our guy. You're following your guy, yes. And, and he is He's not shy about, politics, yeah. about, particularly, you know, Trump and, and between the two parties and, and what's going on, Republic sure. and, Republican and uh, Democrats. Democrats. Yeah. So we, we sort of have some, some knowledge about Good. what's okay. going on. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. guys are a lot better known what's going on in the world than Americans are, but... I'm glad I'm here and learning from you. <laughs> wow. Like, okay, okay, that's yeah, interesting. That, absolutely. That, that's, that's interesting. Oh, man, we're, we're, we're so American-centric, it's, it's shameful. It really is. Wow. Yeah. This segment, we're going to have three sections that we're going we're gonna to deal with and okay. we're going to speak to. And the first of was what we said is we're going to speak on church history and then the black church. And then we're going to speak about your book. Firstly, what we're going to do is we're going to speak about your book, The Color of Compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the inspiration around the book and why the title? Yeah. Uh, how did it come about? Yeah. So a couple of inspirations around the book. One, in the fall of 2015, I started my PhD in history at yeah. the University of Mississippi. So I'm going through coursework and I'm reading hundreds of books yeah. and articles about 
just U.S. history. And you can't read U.S. history without reading about the history of race and racism in its various forms, whether race-based yeah. child slavery, Jim Crow segregation, the continuing legacy in terms of a racialized society. And so I'm reading this stuff, and I'm and, and, and number one, I'm getting mad, right? Yeah. Like, it, like, it's one thing to know that there's been racism, and it was bad. It's another thing to know names and dates and places and decisions that people made to know it in intimate yes, detail. Yes, you yes. Know? So, 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 for instance, Jonathan Edwards is this theologian that some people call America's greatest theologian. He lived in the 1700s, uh, and we know he owned slaves. Yeah. But it's another thing to know that the first enslaved person that he owned was a black teenager named Venus. Yeah. You know, and that just puts a human yeah. face and yes. touch on it. And, and, and it, this visceral kind of repugnance uh, to the racism. So I'm reading it and I'm getting mad. And, and I have to let it out, right? Yes. So yes. a book is one way to do it. Another thing okay. that was an inspiration was I had the privilege of being a PhD student mm -hmm. and reading all of these books by scholars who have spent years and years and years studying this stuff. Most people will never have that opportunity to just sit for a period of a couple years yes. and absorb all this history. So I said, we need a resource that sort of gives us the highlights in one spot. Yes. Uh, a, yeah. a ready, easily accessible mm. resource for the church. So put it in one book. Um, and then lastly, the, the whole book is a, is, is a setup for the last chapter, which is called The Fierce Urgency of Now. And it's a phrase, a quote taken from MLK's I Have a Dream speech. Yeah. And in that chapter, I give several ideas for how we might fight racism. But before we can get there, we've got to understand the history. So there's a historical survey from uh, the 1600s on up to the present of how the American church in particular, but I think you can sort of universalize this issue mm -hmm. of complicity and compromise, yeah. how the church has, instead of courageously challenging racism, was instead complicit Complicity. in building it up, protecting it, promoting it. Sounds very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's part of our South African story. And it's the controversy around, and it's, it's something that I don't think many churches and Christians have today and is grappling with as much as the church who was sort of confronting the church, which was funny, mm. the church confronting the church mm. and speaking about the stuff. Today, I don't feel like that is as much the case in, in the way we're trying to correct instead of there's a default or there's a, there's a response that we get of we are apolitical, we are not, we're not, whatever the excuse is, yeah. but politics has become sort of, it's a bad word and we right. don't want to be associated with, right. with, with the idea. And that's an old, old story, right? So yeah. um, it was very interesting. The Baptists in uh, the late 1700s actually passed a resolution at the denominational level sort of condemning race-based chattel slavery. And then the idea was they sent that sort of statement out to the local churches, but there was such an uproar in the local churches pushing back against that, saying, no, slavery is okay, that the, uh, the denominational level meeting, they reversed their decision. Wow. And the reasoning they gave was, well, that's sort of, that's a civil political issue. It's not something that the church deals with. How on earth is, yeah, it, yeah. is it an issue there, but you benefiting and you, you advocating for it by that's saying, right. let's leave it. Right, right. Well, that's one of the central things that we need to understand about race and racism globally, white supremacy globally, is the role of money and greed. So one of the things I say in the book is that uh, a lot of people in the U.S. call uh, slavery America's original sin. I think it might be more accurate to say that slavery is America's original symptom and the original sin is greed. Because wow. what undergirded the racism, the slavery, the Jim Crowism, what undergirded that was the profit. There was money to be made by separating and subjugating people. Yeah. Both in the U.S., South, South Africa, Africa, worldwide. Yep. Follow the money. It's going to reveal a lot. Sure. You think about it that way, but often we think this is just a hateful person. Right. And then you actually get to the heart of, of, the, heart of the person and the, and the issue, and then you realize, oh, and then that bolts on what then gives birth to exactly. hate and yep. these other forms of how racism comes about. Now in your book, uh, and I think this is, for me, this has been uh, probably one of the most powerful statements or, declarations that you make in the book. Let me just read it. He says, 
Jamal says that history and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession. And there can be no confession without truth. Talking about the book, The Color of Compromise is about telling the truth so that reconciliation, robust, consistent, honest reconciliation might occur across racial lines. Yet, too often, Christians and Americans in general try to circumvent the truth. So there's a, a, a moving away from or don't want to touch this. Mm-hmm. Yet, but we know what the implications are if we, if we do delve into this issue. Right. So if reconciliation is the outcome, if that's the goal, why is it that we don't want to do that? What's keeping the church from, from, from getting into the conversation mm. and having it so that we can move towards, towards that? And can we even win? That's the posture of, of many Christians. Right, right. Do not want to have the discussion. Yes. So I think there are a lot of reasons we avoid telling mm. the truth. And we can even look at individual relationships, right? Yeah. Um, when we know we've done something wrong or we've harmed someone, in some sort of relationship, could be professional, could be a personal relationship. Uh, we don't want to tell the truth about our actions because it implicates us, right? Yeah. What does it say about us if we're the ones who cause this harm? Does it mean I'm an awful person? Does it mean I'm evil? Same with racism, especially with racism, right? Because if we tell the truth, even about history, let alone about the present day, yeah. and I'm white, then somehow I'm implicated. Even if I didn't perform the actual action, wow. because I'm white, I benefited from those racist, sinful actions, right? Yes. And to, to, to admit that, to tell the truth about that is in some level to admit that I'm part of the problem. Sure. And we resist that just as human beings, right? Not even just the white thing. We don't want to look at ourselves as yeah. the bad guy or the bad girl. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is in the U.S., even though Jim Crow segregation was struck down by law long ago, in a technical sense, right? You can't yeah. use the words black or white in yes. the law, but there's still laws on the books that effectively still segregate us. Um, but even though those, those explicit laws were struck down decades ago, we, as black and white people, still live in separate Americas. Yeah, very much so. Geographically and... Geographically, yes, yes, and also experientially, yes, right? So a lot of people talk about the talk, which for a lot of white people, the talk might be the sex talk, you know, yes. talking to your kids about. Yes, 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 yes. For black people, the talk is um, when black parents tell their black children how to interact with law enforcement wow. and police and, and, you know, all of the things that you need to do to not get killed. Keep wow. your hands on the steering wheel. Uh, you know, these days, turn on your, your, your cell phone video recorder, use a certain tone of voice and all of these things. And white people hear that and they're like, well, that's just being respectful. And black people are like, no, that's what I have to do just to not survive. to get killed. Right. Yes, survive. So, wow. so when, when your realities are that distinct and different, even when you hear the truth, it's going to sound exaggerated. It's going to sound like, well, this is an individual issue, not a systemic thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be easy to minimize or deny it because you personally have never had that much experience with it. Yeah. So I think there's lots of reasons, but those are just a couple. Yeah. Wow. Besides the color of compromise, there's a recent project that you've been working on that I sort of noticed on your, yeah. your social media timeline. Very you good. Have, you have a very interesting chapter. Uh, it's the fifth, 15th chapter of the book, and, and the title of the chapter is called Are Black Christians Evangelical? Yes. Without revealing much, because I do want guys to buy the <laughs> books. Uh, by the way, the title of this book is Evangelicals, who they, who they have been, are now, and could be. So that's the, that's the title of the book. And in the book, Jamal has this, 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 this chapter called, Are Black Christians Evangelical? Why the question? Like, yeah. Because where I'm standing, I'm thinking... Evangelical is orthodox. Evangelical yeah. is, 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 is Christian. Is, yeah. is, that's just... Right, right, yeah. right, right. Um, in a perfect world, <laughs> that would be the case. That evangelical is a biblical word from the Greek euangelion, meaning good news. It traces yeah. popular usage all the way back to the Protestant Reformation in, in the 1500s. 
in the United States context, what evangelical has become is code for is code word for white Republican. And mm -hmm. so it's been politicized since um, the late 1970s, the rise of the moral majority and the religious right, which has always been racialized uh, mm -hmm. to mean that to be truly Christian is to be Republican. And because of Republican policies are generally what we would call, you know, conservative, politically conservative, economically and, and socially, that attracts more white people than black people. By far, black people are the most reliably partisan demographic in the United States. We always tend to vote Democrat. Uh, by contrast, white evangelicals always tend to vote Republican. And so in the U.S., to call oneself evangelical is to bring to mind the context of white Republican who's also has has some personal claim to being evangelical. Sure. I, I find that very interesting because sometimes, and, I, and I'm thinking of the conversations that we have, and also for the many commentaries and books that we read coming from the States, what we generally in South Africa and Southern Africa think, those of us who subscribe to a Reformed Orthodox Evangelical theology, mm -hmm. we think and read theology. And I'm not sure now what you're saying that sometimes it, are there some of that overtones in that because from the context this person is writing, yeah. is that what people yeah. are not reading into this and seeing from a perfectly good commentary on, on something? Right. And then you hear the comment, evangelicals do this and they do that. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm thinking in a certain way, whereas in the States, where the context, where this book is, this commentary is from, or this, whatever this book uh -huh. is about, uh -huh. that implication is that. Exactly. That, that, is, that is... Yes, we have to be very discerning about the, the sources, particularly from the United States that we read. So sure. if it's from a white evangelical author... A majority of time, I would say, they're, they're going to be politically conservative and Republican-leaning, which is very problematic right now because of the president who's in office right now, uh, which is Donald Trump, and he ran as a Republican, and the things that he has said and some of the things that he has done have been, in my view, just absolutely horrendous and anti-Christian. And yet, his most, faith, his most faithful supporters remain white evangelicals. So they voted for him. In an even slightly higher percentage than they voted for other Republican candidates in different elections, right? So it's not just, oh, they always vote Republican. They, all, they voted Republican for this man at an even higher rate than in the past. And three years into his presidency, they remain um, his most faithful supporters. He has the highest approval rating among them. And so it's, it's this consistent pattern. Yeah. So are black Christians evangelicals? is to ask the question, are we used? So if you call black Christians evangelical in the current US context, then evangelicalism actually looks very different. different. Wow. But it's, it, I don't think that's quite fair to do because we may share similar theological beliefs, yes. but it pretty much stops there. <laughs> yeah. so, so where we go to church, how we think about issues of race and justice, how we think about politics, that tends to be very different. There are exceptions, yeah. especially for black men. We mm. talk about gender on a whole other episode. But uh, in general, the similarities stop with theological beliefs. Yes. And, and, and this is where context matters. Context, context matters. And I, and I want to point you on that note. I want to point you to a tweet that you tweeted a while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in which you, you say a lot of Christians are reading theology... But need, uh, but we need uh, some more folks reading uh, reading U.S. history yes. too to properly apply Scripture. You can't just read the historical context of the Bible. You have to know your own historical context as well. That's right. Now, what is significant, or what significance is there in reading one's own historical context, and and what does it have to do with applying the Scripture? I, I hear the logic, but I mean, yeah. tease that out a little. Yeah. Bit. So history is context. Hmm. When we go to interpret the Bible, we want to know all about the biblical context. We want to know yeah. who the author was, who the audience was, what the time period was, what the issue they were writing to yeah. address, all of that. Why? Because we want to rightly divide the word of truth. Yes. And the more we know about the original context, the better we can 
understand what is being communicated in that scripture. Yeah. Well, if we want to rightly divide the times, our mm. current context, then we also have to know history. So once again, history is context. Um, especially as we're talking about issues of race in the church, mm -hmm. we got to know the involvement of the church in creating the problem if we want to be part of the solution. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting as, as we're talking about evangelicalism in the United States and the rise of the moral majority and the religious right in the 1970s, a lot of people associate abortion hmm. and, and overturning uh, abortion laws as like the primary uh, political issue of the religious right. And historically, that hasn't always been the case. So hmm. abortion really didn't come into the picture until the late 70s. In the early 70s, the issue was racial integration or segregation. That came because there was a Christian fundamentalist university, Bob Jones University, that refused, it was in their handbook, that black and white people could not date or marry. Wow. And this is <laughs> after laws have been passed, striking that kind of mentality yeah. down yes. legally. And so what the government said, specifically the Internal Revenue Service, which in charge of taxes, what the IRS said was, well, if you're going to have that stance, then you can't be tax exempt. We're going to tax you. Yeah. And religious institutions are generally tax exempt. So Bob Jones University lost its tax exempt status. Other Christians and other Christian institutions saw this happen to Bob Jones University and said, well, they're coming for us next. And we better mobilize politically wow. in order to fight right. the government, you know, impinging what they called it, what they called segregation. They called it a sincerely held religious belief. And so they're saying this is an issue of separation of church and state. You can't do this. So they sued and all of these things. And that's what historian Randall Balmer argues is what initially brought evangelical, white evangelical Christians together politically. Now, they added more stuff to it the later you yes. went. But, you know, that's a very different narrative yeah. than what we hear in the 2019 or the 21st century. Yeah. And only if you knew the history, would you know that? So that's just one example. Yeah, and again, why why the color of compromise probably delves into this because I'm I'm early in the book and I'm getting a whole lot of history and the the beginning of of racism yes. and in the states and and where's all of that stuff came from and how certain churches set and made certain concessions and certain mm -hmm. policies. That's why I am in the book. Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting okay. to know the stuff. It's interesting yeah, to yeah, know yeah. the stuff. It, it doesn't end. It doesn't end. Continues. Yeah. And the church keeps sitting, the church keeps being at the center of the stuff right. and, and, right. and having, and, and it's important for us to hear this because I think in our South African context, we omit this and we, we overlook this. Mm. And we, we mm. ourselves don't, don't do this kind mm. of, kind of, kind of, you know, not criticism, but reflection on honest, robust reflection on on what are some of the solutions. Yeah. Hence, the church is so slow, yeah. oftentimes, to do what it's supposed to be doing in being a better voice and not a reactionary voice. Yes, that's critical. Because we are not thinking we need to correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking that even if oh we didn't our theology, there's something wrong. Even in the in in black churches. We don't process this stuff enough theologically because we're just trying to preach the gospel. And we're not thinking that we actually inherited a gospel as well. Yes, yes. That, that frames this, the gospel in the Bible in a particular way mm -hmm. that does not make us really deal with some of the stuff. Exactly. Many of our, our Christian heroes, uh, so we're dealing with church history, which is that sort of a sweep of that but many of our christian heroes including you mentioned uh jonathan edwards uh george whitfield these christian heroes they of ours and i say heroes uh supported slavery and mm -hmm. even owned uh slaves uh, this is in the midst of because i often hear this 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 comeback that you know they were people of their time mm -hmm. uh, and this is in the midst of there's other christians speaking to the kind of things that they were doing so right. they were pe they were people in their time speaking to this exactly how how should we as a, as a church think about a response to that and think about the complicity of, of the church and think about our own heroes and, and how do we self-correct, but how do we begin to do the work when we look up to, to Christian heroes mm -hmm. like, like Edwards and, and Whitfield? Yeah, so, you know, you, you, uh, 
we're in person, so I can see when you say heroes, it's in air quotes. Yes, um, yes, yes. I can. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I think that that's on the right track. Obviously, if anyone besides Jesus is going to have sin in their life, right? So yeah. any of our heroes are going to have problematic things they've said or done or thought. Yeah. But, but there's not an excuse for racism, for sin, for slavery any of yeah. that right yeah you know the common trope is well all everyone has clay feet right and meaning everyone's prone to stumble and fall yes i get that but we're not holding up everyone as examples to follow as these are the theologians who who crafted our faith and and yeah. we should learn from and study them constantly right yeah that's a different level so so number one we need to have humility about our heroes no matter who they are and understand that anyone we prop up because they're sinful and human are liable to 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 be knocked down because yeah. of their failings. Number two, though, I don't use Edwards and Whitfields as the as as these stellar examples of theology. Most of the time, what happens in a formal educational context is we get these white men, who typically, if you look historically, have very problematic views on race, yeah. and we say, "Oh, that was just a blind spot," or like you said, men of their time. Yeah. Well, I flip that and I say. Here's examples of how you can spend a whole lot of time with the Bible, a whole lot of time with theology, and still get it dead wrong. And I, I argue this is a theological problem. This isn't simply a blind, well, blind spot, spot, and we can trust the rest of their theology. There's a problem with their theology and, and wow. with the way they're doing theology. Now, that's a very subversive message in a context where you've been trained to view these particular white men from history as models and examples. Sure. And then instead... So you don't just take something away, you, you, you get author something new and different. I lift up in the U.S. context examples of black Christians throughout history who have been faithful yeah. and have worked for justice at the same mm -hmm. time. So people like Ida B. Wells and Fannie Lou Hamer and Frederick Douglass and, of course, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. So then you, 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 you're, you're subversive there because now you're introducing people of color yeah. into this lexicon or this canon of Christian theology. And that's what has, has to happen in the seminaries the pulpits, the Sunday school classes, yeah. wherever Christians are found. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't even think that that happens enough if it's happening at all. Right, right. Oh yeah, you you can look at bookshelves of seminaries. You can look at your I, I, I left seminary. Yeah, not knowing, and in, intentionally knowing. That's right. A black theologian. Yeah. You now somebody to... may point out, mm -hmm. but I would never have known. Because it's the one brother uh -huh, we let in. Uh -huh. Oh, oh yeah, Augustine. Uh -huh. Oh, 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 oh. was North African. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was. But, but then <laughs> the narrative is not, I still see a white guy. In my mind, when I conceptualize who, who are these guys, yep. that's what I'm thinking. And with Jesus. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. with Jesus. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Right. Wow. So, so it's so subtle. And, and it's so ubiquitous that we constantly have to have our radar up for ways that racism and this idea that white is right or better creeps into every part of the way yeah. we live and even the way we live out our faith. So that's where some institutions and individuals get it wrong mm. is they think, oh, I can do the panel, I can do the conference, I can do the talk, and we've checked that box. Yeah. Not understanding that this is, this, this is something that's in the air. Yeah. This is something that we need to constantly have a filter for. And we can never shut it off, otherwise that toxin will creep right back in. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, I want to move a little bit to what you speak about. And, and I think people in the States speak about, we speak more in South African context, we speak more of the township church, mm. uh, more than we speak of the black church. Sure. In the States, you guys speak of the, of the black church. We mm. speak of the church in the township. Mm -hmm. It's more geographic yeah. than anything. Excuse me if I'm wrong, guys. You could listening. You could you could correct me on that. Uh, it might be a term. Might be like inner city church. That's typically yeah. code for black. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, but you spoke about the fact that without racism in the white church, there would be no black church. Could you elaborate on on that? And what would your response be to those who say that to speak in these terms is divisive? Yes. To speak of a black church, it's divisive. Rather. We should appeal to Ephesians 4 and the oneness of Christians in one baptism, one, one everything, one Lord, one Savior. This language, yes. doesn't it divide us? Well, what I typically say is 
why do we have churches that are predominantly black or predominantly white? And that's a that's a that's a that's a theological question, yes, but it's also a historical question. Yeah. And uh, you know, usually people don't really have an answer for that. Or they'll say, well, there was racism in the past, but not anymore, right? Yeah. That's kind of the reasoning. But if you look at a denomination like the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is the oldest continuously operating historically black denomination, they split from the predominantly white Methodist church in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And the reason they split wasn't doctrinal, wasn't theological in, per se. Yeah. You, you know, they weren't arguing over the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, the, the, the validity of the historic creeds, Nicene Creed and things like that. No, the issue was uh, the church had just finished a, a, a building campaign um, which black people who had been coming to the church, they helped pay for and promote and all this stuff. Uh, a group of black worshipers went into church one Sunday and unbeknownst to them, they sat in an, an area reserved for white congregants. Wow. And it was during their prayers, they're literally on their knees that, that one of the, the deacons basically comes up and, and tries to pull uh, one of the black people up and says, you can't, you can't sit here. You got to move to this other section. And the black uh, Christian is just like, uh, okay, well, let us finish the prayer. And the deacon said, no, you got to go now before the even prayer was, was finished. Well, they went and they did finish the prayer. And as a group at, on that day, at that very moment, black Christians walked out, walked down the street and started their own church. So what I'm saying is the reason wow. why there is a black church is because of racism in the white church. And then after the Civil War, to this day, America's bloodiest war, hmm. internal, right? And it took America's bloodiest war to finally abolish race-based chattel slavery. Then what happened immediately after hmm. the Civil War, it was this mass exodus of black people out of predominantly white denominations. Again, not over doctrinal issues. It was over racism. They didn't want to be treated as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Yeah. And who can blame them for that? You can blame us for that. To say it's a bit naive to, to overlook, and this is where it comes back to, we do the hard work of historical context within the scriptures, but we don't do the hard work outside of the scriptures and ask logical questions that stare you in That's the right. face That's right. That's and then right. try to speak to an answer. Mm-hmm. What's what's going on within in those contexts? Yeah, I mean, you can't and, just throw a Bible verse at, at, at racism and segregation and prejudice, right? Like if if all it took was Christians being Christian, then we wouldn't have had this issue of racism in the first place. Because in 1667, a group of white Anglican men, Christians, passed a law that said baptism would not confer freedom on people of African, Native American, or mixed-race descent. Wow. These are Christians. Yeah. So if all that's necessary is conversion, then why would they pass a law like that? And one of the ideas in the book, and one of the ideas uh, uh, that historians often talk about yeah. is, is contingency. That every situation has its own context, and every actor, historical actor, has agency. They can make choices. Yeah. And the point of contingency is that none of this was inevitable. So that Virginia Assembly could have chosen to say that baptism would confer freedom, yeah. which would have been more in line with European custom, sure. which said you can't enslave another Christian. Christian. Yeah. That could have happened. It didn't. Hmm. But that therein lies the hope. Where here we are in the 21st century, hmm. and what has been need not always be, yeah. meaning we can make different choices Jesus. today. And we can change that. Yes. We can change that. Uh, I want to... I wanna... Read something from your book again and, and pose the question to you about what the black churches and, and the black Christians in their contribution in aiding the church to see some of its flaws in terms of racism and, and preserving some of that, but at the same time trying to help the church to value what the black church has contributed mm -hmm. to this reformation, where it's a social reformation that they've been they've been busy with, there was a reformation within the church that brought us here. This didn't just happen. Yeah. And we need to give credit to black Christians and the black church for, for accomplishing and, and doing this. Many people listening to this, some of you don't know that, that the ANC was started by pastors. 
The ANC was started by Christian pastors who said enough is enough. Mm. And so even from the outset, the church has had a massive role and influence in this. But let me read this quote from, from the book, The Color of Compromise. The same Bible that racists must use to support slavery and segregation is the one abolitionist and civil rights activists rightly use to animate their resistance. Wherever there, were, there has been racial injustice, there has been Christians who fought against it in the name of Jesus Christ. Christianity has an inspiring story of working for racial equity and the dignity of all people. A history that should now should never be overlooked. The black church in particular has always been a bulk work against bigotry. So here's my question. What practical steps and roles should or can black and African Christians play in ensuring that this legacy of the black church, this legacy continue to live on in practice and in memory? That's good. I think black Christians have a responsibility to study black church history. So it's not enough simply to be black and rely on your own knowledge and your own experiences. You have to study. You have to study history. Yeah. And uh, as we're looking at race in the church, you need to study black church history. So a lot of people ask me how I am motivated to do what I do to speak out about racial injustice and things like that. And, and one of the, my answers is um, figures from the past inspire me. Learning about how Ida B. Wells was enraged by the lynching of one of her black male friends in Memphis, how she wrote about the lynching and the truth about it because the white newspapers were giving it a spin. Her, her small black newspaper were telling the truth and it got her run out of, of Memphis and she had to go to wow. Chicago and other places to simply tell the truth, right? Hmm. And, and, and a part of what motivated her, I would call it a ministry of investigative reporting was her faith and sure. an understanding of justice and, and righteousness and, and truth. So when I read about her, and she went through things far worse than I'll ever have to experience, I, I ask myself, how can I do any less? Yeah. Uh, and it is up to our generation right now to keep pushing the ball forward so that the next generation and our children and, and people who come after us, uh, they won't have as hard a time. And every generation has that responsibility. And with the black church, because so much of our history is oral, because for so long we were excluded from formal education, both theological and other. Our, our theology is found in sermons and songs, uh, the occasional autobiography or book. But to keep that tradition alive, we have to go back and study those sources and constantly keep doing theology yeah. Yeah. in the present day to apply to our circumstances. Yeah. And one of the things that Pastor Alfie pointed out to me is like, David, we need to, we need to be intentional also about but naming and quoting and and make it a point to say that this was a black South African Christian yep. thinker yep. who who said X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And make it a point and, and let that be part of our, our preaching. Let that be part of our Bible study leading. And also what we deal with in our Bible studies and how we deal with those contextual issues that, that speak to the context, that speaks to the church where the church is at Absolutely. in South Africa, in Africa. Great example. Um, I want to ask this, this this question as we move towards the end. In our attempts to speak against racial and social injustices, many Christians of color are accused of playing to the culture. Mm. And with that, we get all kinds of accusations that we are, and I'm quoting this again from your book, but this is more, probably more in the, in, the, in the U.S. context. We are accused of being Marxist, communist ideologies. That's where we get the stuff from. We, we are accused of being in the state of helplessness and victim mentality. Yeah. Uh, and so you keep talking about this, you perpetuate that kind of thinking in your mind. And the worst of all is that you're losing the gospel. And I know we're coming back to this all the time, but this is serious. And this has landed up many, many, many Christian faithful men and women, and they lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. Because once you accuse me of losing the gospel, I mean, I have every grounds to say you're a heretic. I don't want you to teach my, my congregation this. Yes. And so many guys are, are, and women yeah. in the ministry are being are being pushed out of the ministry because of unfounded accusations. That's right. That's right. For speaking about for speaking about justice. Yeah. What what advice would you give a brother or sister who's experiencing that in a church where this is happening, where they're being silenced uh, in many ways from speaking about justice in the church? 
What yeah. advice would you give to those brothers and sisters? Two things. What I've seen is that if you are a person uh, in a context that disagrees with you about race and you're still trying to promote racial justice, one of three things happens. You either get pushed out, burn out, or sell out. Yeah. Pushed out is what you just mentioned. If you keep speaking up, they're going to find an excuse to let you go. Your funding is going to dry up. They say they're going to go a different direction. Uh, they call you a heretic and you're no longer eligible to teach or, or be part of that ministry. Uh, that's pushed out. Burnt out means um, emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes even physically, you crash. Yeah. Because what a lot of white folks don't understand is the physiological toll that racism takes. Yeah. And so if you go into your workplace and every day, it's, it's a triggering space, right? Like your heartbeat goes up, your stress level and your cortisol levels increase. Yeah. Like that has long-term physical effects. And even today in the U.S., we can look at uh, black Americans and they, we have shorter lifespans than, than our white counterparts. That's for a host of reasons, mostly due to injustice, but part of it is that stress of, of yeah. racism. And so you get embittered, you, you, you have a health crisis, and that can happen. Or lastly, you sell out. And what that means is you stop pushing. Maybe you try to assimilate. It's easier to go along to get along. Yeah. And uh, you essentially become culturally white, even though your skin might be brown or black. So that's what I've seen. What I would say to that is we need to seriously consider getting out. Sure. Not in every case, not as the first thing. We're here on a trip with um, a woman who works in a predominantly white missions organization yeah. with all the cultural baggage that comes with American missions, right? And yet she's an internal change agent doing incredible things. She's she's the reason why I'm in South Africa right now, yeah. humanly speaking. So good can be done, but it's also extremely stressful and you gotta count the cost. And I think for, for more and more of us, because times are different, right? Yeah. The, the context is constantly changing. In this context, for me, I've made a decision to consciously withdraw from many white evangelical organizations and institutions. And I've taken a hit for that. As the witness, we've taken a financial hit. There's a lot of money we left on the table because wow. we didn't want to support organizations that were promoting problematic ideas about race. Or we didn't want to have all the strings attached, right? Because if yeah. you take that money, then you can only go so far when you talk about race and justice. And sure. we valued freedom mm. more than those finances. Now, I know it's a tricky thing, but I mean, you know, the Bible never promises that we'll be rich or secure in ministry. What I can say as a note of hope is that anything that I or our organization has sacrificed for the sake of speaking the truth in love, we have gotten back exponentially. Yeah. Not always in money, certainly not. But I think the most tangible benefit that God has, has, has gifted us with, with, gifted me with, in this work is community. So sitting across the mic from you, yeah, being in a similar struggle, even across different continents and countries, yes. the group that I came to South Africa with, yeah. of like mind, having made difficult choices and sacrifices, and you find solidarity yeah. in the people who are suffering for righteousness' sake, yes. and that's a beautiful thing that's an amazing thing. that's worth more than anything we might gain from sort of compromising or or demonstrating complicity. Sure. And, and you, you have no idea what this means as well as from a guy sitting in South Africa, knowing that there are pastors and friends yeah. who are going through this, but people of color were going through this exact thing and then having a point of reference mm -hmm. and saying that actually I'm part of, I'm part of the universal church of God yes. and I'm not alone in this. I'm not, I'm not the crazy one. Yes. I am not the crazy one yes. because there's a thing, we, we talk about it amongst ourselves, but not a lot of us stand up. Not a lot of us join mm. Issa Bambano. Mm. Not a lot of us are willing to have the podcast, mm. to have these conversations. But I, it's your personal walk with the Lord Jesus. It's my personal walk with the Lord Jesus. What this message is saying is that you're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, I want to ask the final question. Uh, you and on, on this topic, you speak a lot about building tables. Mm -hmm. Building tables. What does, that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. Uh, I, I can see there might be some guys who say, my table may not have legs if I go the way you guys, <laughs> I might have, I have to eat from the floor. Like, yeah, what, it might like, be. What, what, do you, what do you mean when you talk about building tables? Is this yeah. building tables for black guys, building our own tables? Is that mm -hmm. the implications of it? It's building tables where you can build, bring your full self to the table. 
And often that's not the case in predominantly white organizations. You have to check your culture and your history and your heritage at the door to some extent, greater or lesser, in different organizations. Building your own tables is the corollary to getting out. Yeah. So once you once you go, you leave the church, you leave the nonprofit, you leave the mission organization, whatever it might be, you still have a call from God. You still have a ministry. And so I think concretely that means building our own organizations and institutions. It's doing something like starting The Witness yeah. because there were other websites that were talking about Christian issues, but they weren't talking about race and justice. So instead of sort of banging on the door and trying to say, let me in, let me in, and, and you know, getting some, you know, a range of responses, we said, don't worry about it. We'll build our own table. We'll, we'll set it. We'll invite anyone who wants to come to the table, but this is what we're about. You know, one of the things that we say at The Witness is that specific does not mean exclusive. We are a black Christian collective, but if you look at our writers, if you look at people who come to our events, it, it's the spectrum of yeah. races and ethnicities. The difference is nobody has to check who they are at the door. And people in the dominant context, meaning white people, yeah. they're learning what it means to follow the lead of people in a minority or a subdominant context. And I think that's valuable both for people who have been historically marginalized and people who have been uh, have historically had more power. Um, that's the that's the humility that the gospel brings and the dignity that the gospel brings. Yeah, that's that's powerful because we that's what we're trying to do in our organization. And we're not saying we are exclusive. We're trying to be the body of Christ, but we're trying to we're gonna recognize some of the things yeah. and fix some of the things. Well, it's been amazing, man. Yeah, I've, I've had I've, I've had an entire this. hour with with the man, <laughs> uh, Mr. Blue Check Verify. I've had the privilege of talking to you. Let's definitely do this again sometime. Yes. I would love back to come back to South Africa. You can come to the U.S. We'll make it happen. Yes, we can do that. <laughs> We're signing out. You can follow us on Twitter at Yella Mensa. And don't forget to like us and check us out uh, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify. You can give us some ratings. You can give us your likes. This audio was produced by Exilic Music. You can find them at www.exilic.co.za. Shout out to my man Jeremy Kuris.